Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Rebecca Whedon. Rebecca is Site Entity Leader for the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory at the future site of the Square Kilometre Array Telescope. Join us as we talk about the SKA, the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, or ASCAP, and her love of cycling. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you for joining me today on Steam Part. It is amazing to have you on and speak to you about all the cool stuff that you're working on right now. Thank you, Michelle. Great to be here. Is it? Well, we met working call center at uh, an ISP, so that was fun. Um, <laughs> how how did you get from you know doing you know customer support way back then to you know working now at the SKA? and you know at the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory? That's a great question. Sometimes I actually <laughs> ask myself the same question. Um, so working with um, with the ISP I think was a, a really really important basis as I'm sure you'll agree for understanding um, communication uh, with with people and, and customers and all those kinds of things. And I was really fortunate um, actually working uh, with the ISP to be picked up by a project group there uh, when we started doing some acquisitions of um, of other companies, and it was from there I had the basis to learn the basis of pro- uh, project management. So in hindsight, that was a huge opportunity from for me. And unfortunately, I was made uh, redundant from that role. Um, but it turns out that was one of the best experiences of, of my <laughs> life, actually. <laughs> uh, from 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 there. Um, I picked up a role uh, back in the days when jobs were advertised in the newspaper um, for acquisitions in telecommunications. So it's not really a a direct link, it's kind of a a sideways link, but they are related. And um, I started to to do some uh, commercial negotiation and acquisition for for Telstra, big um, telecommunications company, uh, for the delivery of their 3G at that time, their 3G network. I'm giving away my age now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you know how we, um, when you have your mobile phone towers, there's often a lot of uh, resistance to those kinds of things and community uh, sometimes not not so forthcoming with the desire to, to have those uh, in their backyard. So that that was me. That, that, was, that was my job to actually go in and um, handle those negotiations with, uh, with the public and, and with the councils and um, – I kind of grew from there. So the journey through to the SKA, um, it's actually from there. You can see it's actually not that big of a leap. So working on, on the telecommunications, I ended up managing a group that did the engineering of, of all of the designs for those uh, communication networks as well. So I just grew from doing doing that single role through to managing the team that did the, the larger aspects of all of the network design. And... Um, so SKA being a, a big radio telescope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not really that much of a leap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're, they're kind of a, it's an unusual journey, but they're quite related when you when you step back and look at it in that way, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So, you know, what drew you to wanting to work, you know, on the SKA? Like it, it's such a, it's a massive project, huge undertaking. What attracted you to wanting to be involved in it? I heard about the SKA first in my own um just research, reading um, 
online articles and what have you about about this massive project that was coming. I think it was the early 2000s I first um, heard about it, and it was a it was a little bit more than a concept at that stage. In fact, it had a different name uh, way back then, and um, it was one. Of, it's just, just the, the the idea of of the world's largest radio telescope was something which it's mind-boggling to me sort of to, to understand that, that this was going to be happening here in Australia as a potential. Because at that stage, there were still many, many countries in the running to be the host of the SKA. And it's actually a shortlisting process over a number of years. And um, at that time, the company I was working with had an existing relationship with CSIRO. And I just put my hand straight up in the air. And I'm like, whatever I can do to get involved with this, I, I want to do it. You know, and I've I was we were really lucky um, that CSIRO being, you know, the Commonwealth Science Agency, um, they were tasked with uh, putting together Australia's bid to become the host of the SKA. And I initially ended up helping out with that bid. So it was actually nothing to do with um, the actual infrastructure of the project or what have you. It's everything to do with um, responding to the, to the bid. It was huge. I think it was... Um, <laughs> multiple archive boxes because everything had to be printed in colour and bound and boxed up wow. and, sh and shipped to them. So it was <laughs> it was um, a very formal, uh, very uh, detailed process that we went through. And uh, we were ultimately successful with Australia becoming the host country. So from there, we had, um, um, I think we're about to have an extra, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's okay. That's George. Um, Hi, George. <laughs> so from from there, we um, we had a, a lot of work to do in demonstrating that we could prove uh, that we could make radio astronomy work in in Australia. And it was uh, from that that we needed to build ASCAP, which is the Australian SKA Pathfinder, which in itself is a, is a wonderful um, radio astronomy project. But that was actually our demonstrator. The clues in the name, Australian SKA Pathfinder. So um, to demonstrate that we could actually make this work. And it was really from there, once we had um, had been ultimately shortlisted down to between us and South Africa, um, that we, we went ahead with the ASCAP design and the company I was working for was involved in the infrastructure design of that. And um, I put, again, put my hand straight up in the air, said, I'll be involved in that. And I ended up project managing um, a large chunk of that. So it's kind of just grown from there. Did you have to like bone up on any of the science and you know the details of the infrastructure before you actually got into it? Um, I think I mean project management as as a whole is is a transferable skill set, um, and it's 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 less about having the technical now so much as it is being able to um, I call I call it being an interpreter more than anything. So if you have a set of technical requirements, you need to be able to deliver. Um, on those technical requirements, but in a human way. So you might end up being the go-between between the scientists and the engineers, for example, which is the role that I ended up playing. Um, so obviously it helps to, to understand what you're talking about. And what was um, interesting about the um, ASCAP infrastructure um, and indeed the SKA infrastructure is um, the electronic equipment. So it's basically, it's, it's located out in um, remote Western Australia because there's nothing out there. It's one of the most uh, radio quiet places on, on Earth. Really, really quite, quite fascinating. Um, but when you're going to go ahead and put a high-performance computing centre out there, it's, it contradicts itself. It becomes its it own does. source of in interference, <laughs> yeah. 
So um, what's unique and special about the um, about the infrastructure is the need for it to be shielded so that you can um, not interfere with your own um, re receivers, which is effectively what was cool about it. Yeah, so it was it was, it, it was unique. So a lot of the aspects of the of the engineering uh, attached to the infrastructure is not not that unique, but the way that they're applied in this way really is quite special. That is very amazing. So. Uh, how much of that infrastructure is already set up and how much is there to go? That's a great question. So a, a lot of the people think that ASCAP actually is the SKA. It's absolutely not. Um, the ASCAP was, um, it, like I said, indicated it's, it is a wonderful radio astronomy instrument in its own right, but it's, um, it's there, it exists, um, but the SKA itself has not commenced construction. So we're still some... Um, we're effectively looking to start letting contracts for the SKA around the middle of next year, which is what we will call the commencement of, of, of construction. Um, so nothing exists out there at the moment, not for the SKA. We do have, um, there's there's a couple of um, stations, they're called, of the antenna prototype that's likely to be used. Um, but other than that, that's it. SKA does not yet exist in Australia, just the prototypes. Yeah. So there's a lot to do. Goodness. So... Uh, what would be the potential applications of having the SKA finally complete? Oh, <laughs> that, is that. <laughs> that is that is the ultimate question. I think one of the things which is unique about um, science of this nature is the accidental applications that will pop up along the way. You know, and that's that's what that's what's really neat. So not only are we uh, going to effectively force the uh, progression of uh, the way we deal with big data, um, not just in Australia, but all around the world, how we process and store and, and deal with that data. But the uh, potential for additional applications um, that will come from um, from the development of that technology. So, for example, some of the, um, the applications attached to the ASCAP um, technologies that were developed for that particular receiver um, now have potential in medical applications, for example. So that's that's for, certainly from the from the technical aspect, but from the science aspect, I mean, your guess is as good as, as good as mine. I mean, Lord knows what we're going to find. Of course, I mean, we we understand what what we hope to find. I mean, we we may well prove, um, you know, the existence of of dark matter, for example, or uh, prove Einstein's theories um, or otherwise. Um, you know, the origins of of the Earth, and of course, you know, things that are people get most excited about is the potential for um, discovering um, other life. Wow, the universe is the limit. You know, yeah, so we, don't, we, don't know, we don't know, but half of the uh, half of what's exciting is finding out. It is. That's amazing, and yeah, just thinking about the amount of data that's actually involved in this, like the scale of this, is magnitudes above you know what I can possibly fathom in terms of you know processing power, storage, transmission. Like it, it's ridiculous. Is the technology being used all still existing stuff, or is it? Are things being developed to be able to handle the magnitude that you know, you'll be getting in with all this information? I remember when we first started talking about uh, the the processing of of the data attached to the SKA uh, six or seven years ago. Even we just we just couldn't fathom um, how that was going to work. I mean, we do have the the the, the Pawsey supercomputer here in in Perth, um, and 
you know, it's it's still in its in its own right is a wonderful um, what a wonderful facility to have here in 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 Perth. Nonetheless, we were effectively um, the amount of processing power can be cost prohibitive, of course, because it's not you're not just talking about the processing, you're talking about the power, you're talking about the cooling, all of those aspects, which are very very expensive. Um, but you've probably also heard of Moore's law whereby, you know, over over time, the cost of these components and these aspects also becomes cheaper. So the, the, there was an element attached to uh, the development of, of the SKA that obviously required Moore's Law to catch up. Uh, <laughs> but as, as mentioned before, it's it's kind of circular in that we're, we're pushing the limits um, by the need to actually develop uh, additional, um, like the processes, for example, needed to be developed. So yeah, it's it's a bit of both actually. It's 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 a bit of both. But I think ultimately there's never going to be a good time to build it. It's going to be, but but now we're we're in a place now, especially with you've got the addition of, um, you know, cloud storage or cloud computing as an option and all those kinds of things as well, which make things quite different from where we were kind of ten years ago. Yeah, it's just obviously where the technology is by the time you get to where you need it to be. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah. Good. Yeah, it's a good point. So as your role as site entity leader for the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory site, what does that involve? <laughs> I know it, sound, it sounds a little bit like I'm a mystic, doesn't it? I, I did some years. <laughs> it was one of the most nondescript job titles I think I've ever had. Effectively, as the, uh, the site entity uh, leader, I effectively run the observatory. Everything but the telescopes is effectively what the way to, to think of it. So out there at the moment at the MRO, obviously we have um, ASCAP, as mentioned before, which is the 36 12-metre dishes, um, which is, again, a wonderful telescope in its own right. We actually have other occupants as well out there. So we have uh, Curtin University, have uh, Murchison Wyfield Array, MWA, and we also have this, this other um, little um, – occupant called EDGES, which is Arizona State University. So we actually have other occupants already. Uh, and then obviously the SKA is coming. So when we talk about the MRO, it's it's not just the SKA side. There's there's other, um, other people out there or other instruments rather out there as well. So the best analogy I can give you is if the MRO were a Westfield, um, I become the <laughs> centre management, effectively. So, <laughs> so the SKA is, you know, it might be a Maya and then NASCAP might be a, a DJ. So it's those those kinds of things and understanding that each of those um, those occupants have have requirements that need to be met um, and managed. Uh, I'm responsible for keeping the site radio quiet. Um, so there's a lot of uh, complexities attached, as you can imagine, with yeah. what's unique about that site is that it is radio quiet, but we also have to keep it radio quiet. So when somebody goes out there and starts, um, you know, with their angle grinder, for example, uh, off me one, one, you know, so, so those are the kinds of things that actually need to be managed really carefully. Um, so it's, it's effectively everything but running the telescopes is ultimately what I'm responsible for. Yeah, that that's nuts. So because you are going to be having to build additional infrastructure and, you know, the tenants coming and going, like doing whatever they need to do, how do you maintain radio quietness when there's so much activity happening? Yeah, that's a, another great question. So there's there's multiple ways you can do that. Um, some of them cost more than others. Um, of course it's, they do. It's, <laughs> so, for example, um, at the, I mentioned earlier, we do have the High Performance Computing Centre out there already, um, which is a fully shielded building. 
So one of the ways you can achieve radio quiet is by shielding effectively everything so that the uh, radio signals can't get out. Now, that's that's obviously a very expensive way of dealing with someone with an angle grinder, which is not really practical. Um, one of the things, the other way you can deal with it is actually by distance. Um, so wherever we can, um, we do whatever we can to make sure that uh, the construction activities will be take will be undertaken in such a way that it doesn't interfere as much as possible. It, what's ultimately what's going to happen with the construction period is going to be very very difficult to not interfere during the day. Um, but certainly at night, for example, you're going to have a big construction camp out there. So what we'll do is locate them as far away as practicable, such that they're um, not interfering with the observing uh, of the other occupants as best we can. You know, it's it's one of those processes that we're working through at the moment. It's, it is a complex one. Because, you know, they'll be recording at, you know, at all times as well. So it's having sure. to coordinate all of that and schedule it. And yeah, that's, that's right. quite the undertaking alone. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I'm here. So, yeah, that's nuts. And, you know, the SKA is, you know, it there's, you mentioned, 15, 16 different nations involved. So how do you coordinate that kind of level of participation? Well, luckily for me, that's uh, that's not me. Um, I'm, 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 I'm one very small cog um, in, a, in a very large machine there. Um, so all of the countries have... Um, we, we work through a central organisation called the SKA organisation, um, which is based in Manchester. So the SKA has its own um, project um, team, effectively, that are set up to manage the, the various streams attached to the SKA. Uh, so the collaboration over the past, what are we now, 2020, so over the past six years um, has been vast. I've never worked on something so complex in, in my life. Um, in, in, a, in a previous guise, I was still working on the design of the infrastructure, um, and now I'm working on the management of the site. So I had to have had two different roles now attached to this project. Yeah. Um, so within the SKA organisation, within Manchester, it was up to them effectively to herd the cats. And the SKA uh, project was broken down into various elements. So um, as I mentioned, I was the Australian infrastructure uh, design uh, project manager, so I had one element, um, and then there was other elements. For example, the um, the design of the um, signal data processing was was an element, for example, and then uh, the uh, AIV, the assembly integration verification team, was another element. So everybody had their own streams, and they all developed uh, their design in accordance with the design guidelines, which were put out across everybody. And then you um, you developed your your bit, and it was all um, we had to go do a big presentation, uh, multiple presentations actually for preliminary design and detailed design, to um, a committee within uh, Manchester, and they approved your design or, or or otherwise. And then we we set about doing the uh, difficult task of actually now putting those things together. Um, now there's still a, there's still an element of that happening right now. It's called the bridging phase, whereby we go through all of the project uh, deliverables that have been now um, completed, and now looking for the gaps. You know, are there gaps in the scope? Are there gaps in the interfaces? Are there gaps in the cost or the time? Those kinds of things. Are there overlaps? Um, so that in itself is a huge undertaking, uh, and that's effectively that's still happening right now. So, like I said, I, I, a very small cog in in a very large machine there it's it's been a huge undertaking wow 
So when you were involved um, in your role, project managing the design infrastructure, um, what sort of, yeah, what did that involve? As it sounds, so there were a set of, um, well, there's always, as any project manager, there's always, there's always multiple considerations, uh, design, design, cost, risk, um, and then obviously the deliverables of the requirements, the, the specifications that needed to be met. So we had quite a large um, number of specifications that, that had to be met. But as I mentioned um, earlier, when we we're talking about the need for Moore's Law to catch up, um, we were designing infrastructure that was in, in, um, in parallel with an antenna design that we did not yet have. You know, so those, those two things don't quite, don't quite match up, you know. So yeah. we, we had to come up with a way to, to be clever in that our design had to be um, readily changed, we could scale up, scale down, modular effectively, uh, which is ultimately what we did. So we, we, again, we had to design a, a new high-performance computing centre, which is significantly larger than the ones in existence. This one's about 1,500 square metres. But we weren't quite sure how many racks had to go in it and therefore how much power was going to be required, how much cooling was required, what have you. So uh, we came up with a modular design, which meant that, you know, you could do the building in two halves. You know, so you think at least for, at, at the very least you put in the first half and if you need to, then you can start dropping in additional modules. Um, so there's uh, additional complexities, of course, attached to construction out in, in the outback as well um, because of the clean, need for clean welds, all those kinds of things. So the, the, the modular approach was, was, the, was the most practical. So you, you design, um, design, construct as much of it off-site as possible, then pop it as back up on the back of a truck and then you truck it out there and then you put it together like a big Ikea project and thank God that's me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, it, it really, it really has been, and it's interesting to, to talk about it now in hindsight, how, what a journey it's actually been. It's been huge. It's a huge undertaking. So was that um, a multinational collaboration or was it still like domestic teams working on that? For the infrastructure element, we were quite lucky in that um, the infrastructure element was uh, predominantly handled by um, Australia, obviously with, with inputs from, from Manchester, but there were a number of other um, elements that had uh, collaborations with universities or other institutions from so all around the world. So, you know, they'd be on their 2am meetings because they had to meet with Canada or what have you, you know. <laughs> so we were actually, we, we were very, very lucky. Some, some of those consortiums were huge, um, but for infrastructure, we were quite lucky, yeah. Yeah, pretty insane. And you also mentioned that you're now taking a unit in astrophysics. <laughs> so, why? <laughs> you know, you know, you know um, week week one, I, I was feeling, you know what? It, it would. Uh, I'm feeling this. I can do this because um, I thought it would, it would be good. Because part of my part of my role, obviously, managing managing the MRO has a huge aspect of, of stakeholder engagement, stakeholder management. So it might, it might not just be the occupants on site, it might be the, the our, our local, our, our neighbours, our local council, state government, through to federal government, through to some of the international teams. Um, but people also want to know about it, you know, they want to know what it is and why it is. And I, I, I'm, I, I'm not a scientist, but I have to do a lot of talks and I have to engage with the community a lot. So I thought, you know what, I know about the infrastructure. I'm going to go learn about the science. And it seemed like a genius idea at week yeah, one. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and then 
uh, by, by week two, um, I had a bit of a cry. Sorry, Dr. Dragansky. I'm sorry about that. Um, but, <laughs> but you know what? Um, I, I can do this. I, I'm, I'm not naturally gifted at this stuff. I'm, um, uh, that the maths is, um, is, is pretty mind boggling, but I, I think by doing it, it gives me a new appreciation for what it is that we're actually, um, looking to achieve. Yeah. And it's, it's been, um, I'm going to say I'm over halfway now and I've, I'm passing. I got, uh, 98% of my tests last week. So very nice. Well done. <laughs> so every, but every little, every little step that I, I, sh- I take forward in this, so it's, it's a huge achievement for me because I'm not, I'm not gifted. I'm not a mathematician. I'm, I'm not a physicist. I'm not a scientist, but to me, it's, it actually feels like a, a little win every week. I feel like I've achieved something, which is actually really yeah. nice. But ultimately, it, it will help. It will help, I'm sure. It, will. It, it does. Having an appreciation for the magnitude of the maths really puts a different spin on when I, when I talk about it and what I understand about it. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, that is amazing. But, I mean, you know, you, you say that it's not kind of your, your area, but, you know, I was reading one of your other interviews and profiles you were programming on your little Amstrad when you were little. <laughs> yeah. Again, you're giving away my age, so far out, man. Um, That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a yeah. So being a, a being a gamer back in the olden days when Jesus was a boy was not about being able to hook up on online to you know some fully immersive experience. It was all the all the tech text based. Um, the text-based games and and worse, a lot of those you actually had to write yourself. So yeah, <laughs> so every couple of months, I, I couldn't. I was only only a kid, so I couldn't tell you the frequency. But I'm going to say quarterly based on the size of the book. Um, Amstrad <laughs> would release this this book like an encyclop like an encyclopedia of all of these games that you would have to code yourself, and and they were te- no, text-based adventure games. You know, so that's that's what I did. You know, so um, I wouldn't say again. I, I was I was gifted at it, but I think it was <laughs> a, needs again. Must. It was I know, I know, I know. It was yeah, yeah. It was it was it's a it's a needs based exercise. But I think for my mum, it was probably in hindsight, it was a way for her to spend time um, with me because she would sit there and, and and we would do that together. Which you know, as an adult, I can see that that's actually kind of cute, right? That's that's yeah, sweet. it is. Um, but. That's that's what I did. You wanted a game, you had to code it yourself. So that's <laughs> what I did. So yeah, it's a different world now. It is. Like like that didn't attract you to, you know, pursuing that further? No, not not really. I mean, I've I've had a go at it. It's I, f- I find with with um with coding, similar to maths actually, when when I when I see it, when I see it written, I understand it, but it's a different thing to write it yourself. So yeah, I, I know I know that you're you're a programmer, and I, I'm continually amazed and impressed by by the way that you can just magic up a solution to something. You just like you you write you write that stuff. It's incredible, it's, and it's the same with um with, with the maths as well. It's, it's another language. It's literally another language. It is. And uh, yeah, I think that's the best way I can describe. I can read it. It's diff- another thing to write it. It's it's not my thing, and I, I I'm at the point in my life where you know what I'm not I'm not going to force it. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with not being able to write it, but I think just being able to read it I think is helpful in itself. That's pretty cool. 
Yikes. <laughs> Moving on, like, well, we're already talking about, you know, all your other interests. So we'll start continuing on with that line. So what is the interest or hobby you have that is most unrelated to your work? I think, you know, yeah, so that show, I'm a track cyclist um, yes. as well. So I'm, I'm a, a, a track sprinter. So, yes, so that's the one in the, the velodrome where they ride around really slowly, the cat and mouse one. Um, yeah. So I, I still uh, compete as well and uh, that takes up a, a lot of my time and I'm, I'm sore most of the time. So there's a lot of gym attached to that, a lot of training attached to that. But yeah. it's, a really, it's a really cool sport. You know, it's, it's got a great community Um it's one of those sports that you can do as an individual but still be together and that that suits me <laughs> it's it's just it's just really cool i know a lot of people have gotten into cycling but how did you get into velodrome i specifically remember watching anna Mears at in athens so that must have made it 2004 and i wasn't a cyclist at all at that stage i wasn't even didn't even have a road bike or anything but i was absolutely besotted with how exciting it was to actually watch um, that sport, it was just completely captured me. And um, I didn't even know how to start. And to be honest, back then, I was actually too embarrassed to find out as well. So uh, uh, my partner at the time, I made him go into a bike store and ask, um, you know, how, how do you do that? How, how do you get started? Now, at that time, they were not particularly um, kind about it because they said, well, she doesn't even have a road bike, so, you know, can't help you, which is a shame because oh. in actual fact... Uh, track cycling is for everyone and yeah. you, you can, you, you can go to a come and try day and, and hire a bike and have a go, you know, but that, that information was not um, given to me, but my, I did pick up road cycling at that time. And my best friend knew um, she was also a road cyclist. Then. <laughs> I really wanted to try this thing and I've got the build for it as well. You know, a lot of the, the track cyclists, their, their nuggets, you know, with the strong um, sprinters with their, their bigger frame, got a lot of muscle and, and that's, that's um, my build. And I was annoying her. I was like, Oh, I want to go. And she, God love her. They come across a, there was a come and try day and she said, Oh, we should definitely go. And, um, and so we did. And, and, as soon as I, I had a go, I was completely hooked and she never went again. So, <laughs> so she, she did that. She did that for me, which was really, really um, sweet of her just to make sure that I actually went. So, yeah, but that's, that's a that's good started friend from there. Yeah, she's a good friend. <laughs> so how did you, or what, what made you get interested in the competitive aspect? Because, you know, it's one thing doing something as a hobby, but to do something at a level where, you know, you're committing training and competing and, you know, there's a lot involved with that. God, why did I, why did I do that? <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Um, so down, um, certainly at our velodrome uh, down in Midvale, um, they used to have Friday night racing um, every, every, most Fridays and it, it, I was kind of, um, I didn't know at the time, um, I think they were lining me up actually. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't, but I just, cause I, I loved it so much. And so I started out just in, in the local racing on a Friday night and um, they would do these handicap races. So being, you know, velodrome being one great big oval, you know, they'd, they'd start me all the way at the back and then there'd be people so far in front of me, they were behind me, you know? And, yeah. and then it was my job. It was my job to, to hunt them down. And that's what I did, you know. So it, 
I literally went from um, doing Friday night, Friday night racing locally to going to a national championships. I, I hadn't raced dates or anything. I just went straight to national. I had no idea what I was doing. Absolutely no idea. But I think that's that's part of um, again in hindsight. I can't even believe I did that. I didn't even know how to. This, <laughs> you know, it was crazy. And I, I just, I was like, I'm definitely going to go. But I, I don't know. I'm I'm happy to do. Sometimes I just do things which are completely off the wall. And that was one of them. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a great experience. And I, and I think now some of the anxiety that I, um, my anxiety, you know, you get nervous before you race now. And at that time, because I knew nothing, I wasn't even nervous. You know what I mean? There's, <laughs> there, there's, it's, it's one of those things. It's, um, Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> it is. That's absolutely it. Summed up nicely. Thank you. <laughs> so it's just, it's carried on from there. Oh, that's crazy. And yeah, so how do you juggle the amount of training required for cycling at a competitive level with what you do, especially with having to go out on site from time to time? Um, so out at, out at the MRO, uh, it's, it's pretty cool, actually. So there's, at the moment, it's a, it's a donga-based setup and there's, there's a, a donga that's actually a gym. Um, so I can still do uh, predominantly uh, um, a, lot, a lot of sprint work is actually attached to doing a lot of gym work. Uh, so that's fun. So I can still lift weights out there. Um, but also, um, they bought a bunch of mountain bikes, um, and they're pretty good quality ones as well. So, uh, when when you go out and you stay there, uh, (laughs) you'll catch me doing, um, you know, burning out up and down the runway, the airstrip, just go, I'll go get up first thing in the morning when the sun comes up before it gets too hot and you just go out there and you just just do bog bats up and down. So you can still get the training in. You just yeah. have to adapt. You know, I think that's that's the difference with being a um, an adult athlete. You just got to find a way. Like if you have a desire to to stay at that level, you just you just have to find a way. Um, so I'm 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 pretty lucky. I you know I've got um, you know obviously with lockdown I had a lot of time at home and I've got you know the ability to train here um, at home. Um, you know I might ride my bike to work and incorporate some training into that or you know a lot of nighttime training you just you just got to figure it out you know we've all got the same 24 yeah. hours a day so yeah it is really tiring good. well you've got the dedication for it and clearly you know you've got the you know accolades for it too so it's definitely worth it thank you yeah it's um yeah sometimes when i talk about it in this context i wonder why i do it as well <laughs> <laughs> i do though so to be fair with with lockdown um the velodrome was closed for months and yeah. I was uh, relegated to riding on the road, which is, which is still nice. It's lovely to be outside. Um, but when I, when I first went back, it was, it was really nice to have it reaffirmed that I actually do really enjoy the sport, you know? So when you, when you have that, that enforced break, it's nice to be able to go back and say, yeah, you know what, this is actually pretty cool. It actually is fun. And that's, and that's fine. So the day that the fun's not there and the enjoyment's not there, I'm not going to do it anymore. It's really that simple. So, now that you're, you know, you've got your world champion and your record holding, where do you go from there? Dang, I, I, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful um, achievement, and it's, yeah, the, I, I had that pop up actually in my Facebook memories came up um, just recently because it was October um, that 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 happened, and uh, you get to relive that um, that sense of achievement all over again. Where to from here? There's, there's literally, there's, there isn't anything more that you can do. You know, you, you, you spend an entire year, you know, slogging your guts out, you know, for up to 16 hours a week to go and ride for, you know, 20 seconds. That's what, the, you know, so that's, 
yeah, so to actually come away with with that as an achievement is um, is pretty special. Um, you can't top it. Is this the reality of it? You know, but <laughs> <laughs> it gets to it gets to a point where it's actually now no longer about the the outcome. Like if I've had many um, competitions now where I've um, not come away with a medal around my neck, and I'm actually but yet still managed to be really proud of myself because the performance I put in was was what I had hoped to achieve, you know. So, and the thing is you can never guarantee or, or be assured of, of who else is going to turn up. You just don't know who's going to be there on the day. Um, and a lot has to go your way for it to be that as an outcome. So to go in with, um, you know, winning as, as, a, as a desire or, or a required outcome, you're just going to come away disappointed, you know. So... Yeah, I don't know. The competition is is as much about uh, personal achievement as it is about, you know, being up on on the blocks at the end. You know, so. I mean, the fact that you're able to get to compete at that level, whether or not sure. you win, that that's still amazing. It's still an incredible achievement each time. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Take it's taken years to 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 not rebut that. Yes, thank you. That's kind of. <laughs> yeah. Your achievements deserve to be celebrated. <laughs> Thanks, Shell. Blushes awkwardly. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay. okay, we'll move on then. <laughs> so which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? I think... Um, the... It can be an embarrassing it, one. If yeah, you like. no, no, it's okay because it's okay, I've actually got two. So uh, it's from different stages in my childhood. When I was, was quite young... Um, Dr. Zeus, Dr. Zeus books for sure, 100% was completely captured by Dr. Zeus. In actual fact, I still have a, I have a um, a copy of every single Dr. Zeus book um, now, which I went and purchased a couple of years. They're, they're fantastic. Like even now to read them as an adult, some of the advice in those are really, really pretty cool. Um, but the other one I'd, I'd have to say is, do, do you remember Choose Your Own Adventure? Yes. Do you remember those books? Yeah. <laughs> Any of those. I was completely obsessed with those from about the age of about 10. I thought they were amazing. Nice. Did you ever try to <laughs> mulligan them just to try and get different outcomes? Of course, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and to the point where as, as a child you do you do um, pointless things like actually try and read it from page to page just to see what that – and that doesn't work either. Can can, no, can confirm does not work. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. But that, that was the beauty of it, yeah. So you, you try and give yourself a, a, a different way through each time. It was neat. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what happened to those. I don't even know if they still exist. They should. They were cool. Yeah, they should exist. I haven't seen them in ages. Yeah, definitely good ones. <laughs> You're making me sound so old. <laughs> no. Oh, I'm teasing. It's all good. Yes, <laughs> not old at all. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, what advice would you give someone who would like to do what you do or what advice should they ignore? I am a strong believer in that no one can ultimately tell you who you should be or how you should be. And I, I, I wish now, um, obviously through our teen angst years, that everyone's going to have their own journey. But certainly through my, my late 20s and into my 30s, I had this idea like I had to be a particular way if I, if I was ever going to be successful. And I kind of, kind of realised... Um, had an epiphany where I realized that there's actually people in the world who actually like and enjoy me for who I am as the real me, not, not for who I think that they want me to be. 
So one one hundred percent, no matter what you do, you you got to be true to yourself. Ultimately, if they if they don't like you, they're not even worth it. That's that's the truth of it. You don't want those people in your life. They're just going to make you live your life with anxiety and stress. You just don't need. So bugger them. Yes, that's, ex- <laughs> that's excellent advice. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so yeah, doing doing what I do. I mean, you know, just just follow your. Um, Follow the leads, follow your nose, do what you want to do. I think certainly and when we start talking about um, STEM or STEAM in this case, um, you know, some, some of those um, hot items that I think will become absolutely critical will be, will be the gamers. You know, it's, it's that, that skill set is, is highly transferable now. So if you're out there and, um, you know, you're coding or you're gaming or you're doing all of those things now, I mean, applications for those certainly in, in, um, in the science realm and engineering as well, highly transferable so so please don't stop you know and especially for the young girls for the for the teenage uh, girls if they think if they're into that kind of stuff don't stop you know no matter no matter what because you those skill sets are the future of where we need to get to moving forward especially in engineering and science and yeah it's, it's you know a lot a lot of the things i think now you're getting a lot more girls getting interested in sort of things and wanting to know more and trying to figure out more and it's just yeah making sure that they know that there's people like you, there's people like, you know, all of the other people doing their thing in right. their own way. And yeah, yeah making Absolutely. sure they can find their own way. Absolutely. It's all you can do. It's your life. You only get one shot as far as we know. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> got to just go for it. Yeah, indeed. You got it. Great. So well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for speaking with me today about the SKA, how you got there and your incredible achievement in cycling. Uh, if people want to learn more about you and what you do, how can they reach out? Uh, I think probably the easiest way to connect with me would be um, through LinkedIn. Um, my name, Rebecca Weed, and I'm not that difficult to find. Um, or obviously being attached to CSIRO, uh, feel free to, to hit up CSIRO on. They've got, they've got an awesome Insta account. If you're not following CSIRO on Insta, whoever, you know, writes some of that stuff, they're very, very cool. Um, and Twitter, of course, CSIRO. And if you're here in, in WA, uh, feel free to, um, to reach out. And, you know, I'm happy to anyone who wants to have a chat, feel free. It's fine. Brilliant. Well, thank you again so much for speaking to me today. Pleasure. Um, and it was great meeting George a couple of times he wandered by. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. Got to have extra special guests. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks so much, Shell. Cheers. Learning about the Square Kilometre Array and the magnitude of the logistics and infrastructure required for it, not to mention the science and engineering involved, is mind-blowing. And it's been fascinating to hear about Rebecca's experiences working with and managing her part of a project of this scale. Endeavours like the SKA are simply incredible, not just for their size, but because of the potential for innovation and discovery during the course of its development, as well as when it becomes operational. To learn more about Rebecca and what we discuss on this show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steam Powered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also reach out to Rebecca on LinkedIn, and find out more about the SKA Telescope on their public website and through CSIRO, the links of which will also be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek-curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.